Okay, hello everybody and welcome to the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism Fellowship uh, Programme Seminar Series. I'm really delighted to invite Professor Jay Rosen from New York University um, to talk to us with uh, the, one of the best titles, I think, very straightforward, what I learned by watching the American press try to cover Trump. I run a journalist fellowship program that brings together journalists from all over the world, from Brazil, from Yemen, South Africa, India, Pakistan. And it's always incredible to watch the United States um, and its politics and drama unfold. But we rarely have people who can genuinely give a kind of overview of the media space and be involved in this. And we're really pleased that Jay has agreed to do this today. We're going to do it with a kind of classic format, which is that Jay will present, we'll keep everything on the record. If you have any questions, please type them into the chat function as we go along, and I'll put them to Jay at the end of the, uh, after his presentation. Thank you very much. And like I said, everything is on the record and um, bear that in mind. And it's also a very, very global audience we have with us, which I'm very pleased about. So bear that in mind when making references as well and kind of make sure you explain context. Thank you, Jay, over to you, Jay. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, <coughs> excuse me, to the Reuters Institute for hosting this talk. Uh, I'm going to present some reflections on what I've learned by watching the American press try to cover a true phenomena, uh, the presidency of Donald Trump. But before I begin, I have a few disclaimers. First, I'm speaking about the American case, which I know best, but I'm highly aware that political figures like Donald Trump have emerged many times before in many other countries. I'm likewise aware that um, the methods I'll be talking about were not invented by Trump or native to the United States. Other countries have gone through things like this and worse. And I just wanna say that at the beginning that uh, I know that. Um, to prepare for this talk, I made notes about the things that I've learned by writing about the press and Trump since 2015. Then I selected the 10 most important and I put them onto slides, trying to word them carefully. And I'm just gonna read the slides to you so that you can hear me say it and also read it and hopefully the combination will work. You can consider these my provocations, but I am not trying to be provocative. I'm trying to be descriptive. So with that, let's start. My, sorry, my biggest learning by far is this one. The practices of the American press rest on buried assumptions about how presidents of both parties will behave. Those assumptions do not apply to Donald Trump. This means the practices break. But since the assumptions had long ago been naturalized, the press has tended to normalize Trump rather than face the difficult work of changing its practices. I've also learned to appreciate something that I call verification in reverse. To verify is to take a truth claim and nail it down with facts, data, documents, interviews. Verification in reverse is when you take what has been nailed down and publicly doubt it. 
This creates friction, controversy, excitement, story. You can tap that energy to power a political movement, which is how Trump's candidacy got started. He became a birther and he tapped into that energy. Terms like post-truth don't really speak to me, but I've learned a key fact about the tech platforms, especially Facebook, which is how efficient they are at surfacing the demand. And for sensing demands like that, journalists think of themselves as suppliers of truth. The demand for a claim to be true is where Trump lives. A simple example of that would be his statements about the virus. It'll just go away. third lesson is that flooding the zone works. In the US it's called flooding the zone. In the Russian setting, the same method is called the fire hose of falsehood. This method attacks journalism at its weakest points and it is working. It erodes trust on all sides, persuades people they aren't getting the truth, repels all but the most determined listeners turns politics into ugliness. Neither the small d Democrats in the United States nor the big J journalists have an answer for it. It is running free. The Democrats don't matter, Steve Bannon said in 2018. The real opposition is the media. And the way to deal with them is to flood the zone with shit. Bannon is not a wise man, but this was a smart statement about Trump's political style, which turns journalists into hate objects, overwhelms the news system with controversy, and persuades supporters to pre-reject whatever the press says about him. You could call this governing against the news media, and it's basic to Trump's political method. In 1,170 days, President Trump has made 18,000 false or misleading claims. This was a recent headline at the Washington Post. An ancient law in American journalism states that what the president says is news. But this is an example of a practice that he broke by his endless lying and disinformation. So I've learned to urge the press to replace that ancient maxim with a new one. Okay, the president said this. Is it really worth amplifying? It may not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS. 
Les Moonves, CEO of CBS, one of our biggest television networks, said that on February 29th, 2016, about eight months before Trump was elected. This was a profound statement. Not only is Trump's rise good business for the industry that pays the salaries of most journalists, but also, he said, what is good for the news media is bad for American democracy. But hey, this is what we do. This is our business. The costs of that in professional pride and public trust has been incalculable. Missing in action is the Republican Party. It's another thing I've learned. Political scientists will tell you that opposition to an American president rarely changes the mind of his supporters. But when leaders of his own party push back against his excesses, that matters to his voters. It almost never happens with the Republican Party and Donald Trump. So here is another erosion of American democracy. It permits both Fox News and Trump's presidency to be about his fights with the media. If the Republicans were more willing to push back, the news would be about that as well as Trump's latest outrage. But since they have chosen to uh, remain silent, the continuous curriculum can be Trump against the media because that's the real opposition as Steve Bannon said. In the United States, we are unbuilding the public for news. Unbuilding, this is what I mean. Trust in the news media has been declining for a very long time, since the mid 70s. But now something more dramatic than that has happened. About 30% of the electorate trusts in Trump as their primary source of information about Trump. And it rejects the reporting of the mainstream press, or as I said earlier, pre-rejects. Interlocking with Fox News, an authoritarian news system is up and running for almost one third of the voters. It's often said that Fox News is state media and that's true to a degree, but we have to also keep in mind that we have now a media run state because most of what the president does is watch news. Returning to my first slide, James Fallows of the Atlantic said it more simply than I did. He says, the media weren't built for someone like this. That someone has not changed, so the media must change. And this is true, but it goes deeper than that. And this is a key thing I've learned. Practices like both sides reporting, horse race coverage of elections, 
treating politics as a game played by insiders. All of them pictured a world of roughly equal parties playing by the same rules and trading power election by election. And so a political consensus in American society made plausible a range of consensus practices in the press. That is now crumbling. We used to have two parties that believed in science, for example. Now we have one that is in revolt against science. We used to have two parties where presidents, for example, listened to their daily briefing from the intelligence community. Now we have a president who rejects that practice. We used to have two parties that, when the president went abroad, made sure the press was there and uh, that the press of the country he was visiting was there and that questions could be asked of both leaders because that was an important demonstration of the American ideal of a free press. Now we have one party that doesn't believe in that anymore. And so the erosion of a political consensus that lasted for, um, well, since the end of World War II, uh, as drawn into crisis, the consensus practices that were built on top of that. So those are my 10 provocations, and I'd be happy to uh, explain them more, and of course, answer any questions you have. Thank you very much, Jay. Like I said to everyone, um, do type in your questions as you, as you, as, as we go along and I'll, I'll, I'll read them out. Um, and yes, Kath, we will share the slides later. Everyone who registered will get an email with the, with, with the slides as well. Um, can I ask a little bit more about flooding the zone? And can you elaborate a bit on what form this has taken and what platforms do you think have been used primarily to do this? Well, um, American presidents used to engage in something that scholars called news management. And news management meant that you had um, a message of the day, something you were trying to get across to, um, to the public and to other actors in the political system. And what presidents, Democratic and Republican, tried to do was not make news on anything else so that their message of the day would uh, shine through. Um, and Trump not only doesn't do that, but he does the opposite. He overwhelms the system with news by saying so many controversial things, by um, repeating uh, lies that he's uh, told before, by polarizing the country in his re uh, remarks and uh, many of his uh, positions, uh, and by behaving outrageously in public. At one time, it was believed that if American president said something that was untrue, this eroded the authority of the president and um, created doubts in the minds of the voters. And it was just something that you didn't do. Not only does Trump not care about that, he is using an, an opposite method where the more things he says that are outrageous and uh, need to be fact-checked and that, um, that cause controversy, um, the more he is winning by taking up space in the political system, by, by just occupying everyone's mind all the time. 
Um, and so not only does he sort of step on his message, uh, as it were, but he overwhelms his message and the media system because who can check all of that uh, crap flooding from, um, from the presidency. Uh, and this um, is, is effective. It's not, I don't think it's a, a brilliant strategy. It's, it's much more the craziness and ruins of Trump's personality meeting the powers of the presidency. So I don't, I don't consider him a media wizard or a genius of politics the way many people in journalism do. I think these are just the tendencies of his personality coming into the contact with the enormous platform of the presidency. Um, and one of the consequences of that is that the news seems to be all Trump all the time, which in turn repels a lot of people from paying attention to the news. And that too is to Trump's advantage because if fewer people are paying attention, if, um, if undecided voters are driven from the marketplace, as it were, if, if it's just his core supporters against his core doubters or haters, uh, that's a situation he prefers. So that's what I mean by flooding his own. Okay. And um, Kathy English, who, who should be with us as journalist fellows, but in Toronto at the moment, she's asking on that idea that the news is all about Trump in terms of every, you know, so there is no other news for people. Do you think there is any US news organization that's getting this bit right? And what do you think about the global news organizations covering America, The Guardian, and so on? We can well, it is I might true. stop your share screen. Oh, stop your, your, There you go. That's Did that work? Good. Yeah, now we okay, can see thanks. I, I wouldn't say any American news organization has gotten it right. Um, and, and the reason, and, I, and when I say that, I don't mean there hasn't been a lot of great journalism. There has been, a, in a way, a flood of great journalism. Um, there's been many important investigative reports, too many to even remember that, which is part of the problem. Um, and when covering Trump has coincided with traditional practices in the press, then the press has been able to use those practices and, and tell the story as it were. When I say that I don't think any American newsroom has gotten it right, what I mean is, going back to my first slide, Trump breaks all assumptions and norms about the American president. That has led to broken practices. The real challenge in covering this president has been to create new practices on the fly. And with the exception of perhaps being more willing to say that lies are lies and being a little bit more direct about, um, about what he's doing there, we haven't seen uh, uh, new practices arise from the wreckage uh, of the old. Where foreign news organizations have had an advantage is that they come in excuse the cliche, with fresh eyes, and, and they can sort of see what American journalists can't because they're, um, they're, they're too used to this spectacle. So uh, very often people bring up to me a, a column written by the editor of The Guardian in Australia, who came to the US, attended a, an event with Trump, and was just astonished at how 
incoherent he was, how he couldn't actually put a thought together with a, with a, with a subject, with a verb and an object and, and complete a sentence. Or, and that it was very hard actually to understand what he was saying at all. And it, it almost sounded like somebody who was having a mental breakdown. And this was all very apparent to her. But she noticed that when she saw the news reports of this event, American journalists kind of cleaned it up. They made it, they made it seem much more coherent than it was. And this shocked her because it seemed that they kind of weren't telling the truth about Donald Trump. And so that's, ha that's happened a couple of times as, as foreign um, or international journalists have come and tried to describe this. Of course, the same thing really happened before Trump took the presidency because there were many journalists around the world who had dealt with the rise of authoritarian rulers who were able to warn the American press about what was coming, but uh, our journalists are not known for taking uh, directions from other countries. Yeah, we'll, at the Reuters Institute, we did put out a document um, just after 2016 where we wrote to all our journalist alumni around the world saying, how do you deal with powerful people who lie? And the result yeah. was a shared document that's on our site, I'll put the link, to precisely do this, to kind of try and get an international. Yes, and, and in fact, it was Reuters, not the Reuters Institute, but the Reuters News Service, where I believe the editor-in-chief said, we're gonna cover him like we cover other similar rulers in other countries. And we do have a lot of experience doing that, you know, covering Duarte in the Philippines, for example. And we're gonna take what we learned from that to this assignment. I thought that was very wise of them. Thank you. And another question um, about, kind of related to this about trust in media. This is from Yarkos in Finland, which always gets, you know, everything right in terms of trust and legitimacy of media, but said he's asking if trust in media has eroded since the 1970s, and in a way Trump is the end product of this kind of journey. And do you think the US legacy media itself shares some responsibility for this erosion and, and what? Definitely. Um, it's, a, it's a very common tale. I don't think we completely understand it yet. Um, so I'll say two things, or several things about that. First, one point I'm trying to make is that um, that trust in the, in the news media rested on consensus in society um, that was much larger than the news media. And, th and that is eroding, which is one reason why trust in other institutions is also in decline, even though trust in the media kind of leads, in some ways leads that development. But if you ask journalists about this, one of the first things they always say is, well, trust in all institutions is in decline. Um, and I never considered that such a great answer uh, because if that's true, you're supposed to be the watchdogs. You're supposed to be the ones who are, who are portraying what's gone wrong in American institutional life. And so if trust in other institutions is declining, trust in journalism should be um, improving because you're the watchdog over those institutions. You're the one who's telling us what's going on. Um, and so I think several things are going on there. One is that the political press in the United States took a long turn a long time ago. Um, nobody knows exactly when it happened and, and it wasn't a, a decision, it was just a, a tendency. But it took a long turn when it began to focus on 
the inside game of politics. Um, when it uh, began to narrow its sights to um, the professionals who operate within the system and kind of manipulate things in order to win, uh, our political press became fascinated with um, what you call in the UK the spin doctors, um, the operatives, the strategists, um, the polls, the horse race, the mechanics of politics. And uh, that perspective um, not only appealed to a narrow portion of the public, but it invited that portion of the public, you could call them the news junkies, to begin to look at the political world the same way that professionals in politics do. Um, and this is why I developed my critique of what I call the savvy style in political journalism, in which the attempt is to get readers, viewers, listeners to enter into politics like an operative, um, like an insider. And when you do that, you begin to regard your fellow citizens as objects to be manipulated on the chessboard. And this, this style of reporting, the insider style, became the dominant style. Uh, and uh, it also became like an aspiration for people who went into political journalism. It was, of course, most intensely practiced in the Capitol in Washington, but it spread to state capitals and, and, and because of the career path in journalism where you start in small towns and, and you try to jump to the state capital and then you try to go from there to New York or Washington, um, that, that style pervaded the profession. And I think as new, as new facts about American life started to spring up, as, new, as, as, new, as a new society emerged, political journalism didn't, didn't keep pace with it. Um, so, I, I, so I think there's something to that. And then there's you know, that moment uh, back in the 1990s when Jon Stewart went on the CNN program Crossfire and said to the hosts, one from the left, one from the right, Who's, who every night um, engaged in this sort of theatrical combat with one another. Um, when he said to them, you're hurting America, CNN changed uh, uh, in the sense that it got rid of that program, but it didn't change the formula of nightly combat between predictable rivals who are kind of part of a show where we're going to put on an argument every night. That style of, in cable television is also um, a, a big part of the problem. Uh, and Fox News exploited that in the, in the mid-90s when Roger Ailes uh, went on the air with Fox News. He realized there was a huge untapped market. Uh, and we're, now we're living with the results of that. So I think there were a lot of bad practices that were, in a sense, were broken way before Donald Trump that um, contributed to the disaster that we are living through right now. And Tony Goodfellow calls it um, palace intrigue, which is absolutely right. And I'm reading, yes. like everybody else in lockdown, The Mirror and the Light by Hilary Mantle, which is the description of Henry VIII's Tudor court. And it seems to be, re reflect both Westminster and the White House. Related to this um, question from Neil Boudet, which is, um, what do you think about the term access journalism 
And how would you define it? And do you think it's as pernicious as some people think? I think there's a lot to that. Um, I don't consider it the, um, the key that unlocks everything uh, that's wrong with the press. Um, they only care about access. That's, it's a reductive statement, just as they only care about ratings is a reductive statement. And I, I try not to um, fall into that. But I think it, with, the, with the White House press especially, and the White House uh, Correspondents Association, which is um, the body that kind of lobbies for uh, White House correspondents, um, for that group, um, yes, it's, it's access, but access in many different ways. Um, first of all, they're protecting their physical space in the White House. They have not only the briefing room, which they consider kind of their space, but they have um, very cramped uh, but um, workable workspace in the, in the White House where you can file the reports. Um, and that workspace gives them regular access to the president's communication staff, so uh, they protect that. This itself is, is really interesting because in other countries, like in Germany, for example, it would be common for the government to go to the headquarters of the press to be questioned by journalists. So it's journalists inviting the government into their house. In the US, it's the press that was invited into the White House. And that action, which took place uh, early in the 20th century, but late in the 19th century, of inviting the press in, gave the American press a kind of a stake or a role in the presidency. And so journalists in, in the United States who report on the White House consider themselves part of the presidency. They may not say it that way, but that in fact is how they think. The fourth estate, that idea of the fourth estate kind of captures that notion that they are, they are part of the government in a way. And in order to, um, to fulfill that role, you, you need access. So part of it is access to the, the White House itself, <clears throat> Part of it is access to the president. So it, it, is, it is defined in, in White House reporting as a good thing when you have access to the president. And this is an example of one of the practices that Trump broke. Because if the result of your access is that he is able to send out more deceptions through you to the American people, <clears throat> if the result of your access is that bad public health information from the president gets to more of the country, then what good is that access really? What, what, what good journalistic goal have you achieved by tossing out questions to somebody who is further deceiving the American public about the state of the virus, for example? Um, so access is access to the president, and it's also access to his staff and the insiders whose behind-the-scenes accounts and anonymous quotations are kind of the currency of, um, of White House reporting. And there, there is something to the notion that to preserve access is a huge constraint on what you are willing to report. I think that's true. A, a reporter on any beat, not just the White House, who has to maintain 
sources on, let's say, both sides of a conflict will, will write and report in a style that maintains that situation. Because if you can't keep sources on both sides, you can't do your job. You can't um, get exclusives or scoops, which is another part of the currency of being a, a, a reporter. And so, yeah, maintaining access gives a reporter a kind of a stake in the ongoing story that is not the same as the public stake. It has been, um, has been the idea of who gets access, who's part of this club. And Danielle is talking a lot about, you know, we talk a lot about di diversity in newsrooms as a solution to avoid mm. bias and preconceptions about people when reporting it. But when the top mm -hmm. bosses all have the same profile and they share the same opinions about crucial topics and also all the reporters in, 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 within the White House who have this access, how does this affect comprehension about what is this new normal and what's going on? I think it's a huge factor. I think it um, cuts a lot of different ways. Um, <clears throat> one of the problems there is that um, you, you not only have to try and attract uh, a diverse staff, which is difficult to do when leadership, for example, is all the same type of person, but when um, a diverse staff is hired and they arrive in the newsroom, in the United States, one of the first things they find is that while you may have been hired to provide the perspective of your community, your class, your region, um, your culture, uh, while you, you may be valued for adding a missing perspective, you are also supposed to learn a news writing and news reporting formula in which your perspective is bleached out of the reading so that you can show that you're an objective professional uh, capable of seeing the broader picture. And so the combination of, um, uh, of the diversity uh, drive in American newsrooms, which has been going on for like 35 years, and the view from nowhere as a dominant professional ideology in American newsrooms is a toxic one because the two things work against one another. And this is a contradiction that I think the bosses of the American news media have not wanted to face. There's another factor here, which is when the editors, top editors, think that they are out of touch with a group of Americans that they don't know well, um, that is not part of their culture, they tend to actually um, give a lot of credence to their claims. They step carefully around them. They uh, will often um, allow them to intimidate the newsroom. Whereas when editors think they know a lot about a culture, they will tend to reject the complaints of that culture. And that, and that is uh, a really difficult dynamic. So I, th I think this is super important to erosion of trust in the press, but if, if you continue to try and hire <clears throat> minority journalists 
into a newsroom in which the view from nowhere is the professional ideology, you will continually be frustrated that your campaign to diversify the newsroom somehow isn't working. So what would be the solution? Where would, where would we start? <clears throat> well, my solution is rejected by most of the people in, who are still running uh, American newsrooms. And that is, we, we need a whole other system of, of generating trust in journalists. Instead of, um, this is our report, we don't have a stake, we don't have an ideology, we don't have an interest in it, we don't have a philosophy, we don't have a priority, we're just telling you the way it is so you should believe it because these are the facts. Mm -hmm. Instead of trying to build trust that way, I think a more reliable way to build trust is, this is where we're coming from, and here is what we found, and these are our practices, and sometimes that approach is summed up as transparency. So um, transparency is don't believe it, look for yourself, here's where I'm coming from, this is what we found in our reporting, here are the documents, here's the way we went about it. All of that is a much more reliable way to generate trust. And in that system where instead of saying, we're the professionals, we have no views, we have no ideology, we have no philosophy, we have no starting point, we have no assumptions. Instead of saying this is where we're, instead of saying that, this is where we're coming from, leaves more room for uh, a diverse news staff to be itself. Um, but that's a long-term shift in the way trust is produced in journalism. I think we are in the middle of it, but it's gonna take a long time and there's gonna be a lot of fights and a lot of blood uh, before yeah. it happens. And I have to add as a complication, there will always be assignments, there will always be beats in which it makes the most sense for the reporter to conceal their view and conceal their opinions because they have to um, stay in touch with and stay in good standing with sources uh, on both sides. Like that'll continue to happen. Um, but the claim that the news media deserves to be listened to because it is professional and objective can be rejected by the public if the public stops believing it. And increasingly, the, what I call the view from nowhere is mistrusted by the public. And in that situation, it's up to journalists to start changing. Thank you. Um, a question can link to that with, from Tony Goodfellow, so asked a few real existential questions in the chat, but the one here is, are you optimistic or pessimistic for the future of the US press? So can the tensions between the fourth estate and democracy ultimately be resolved, or do you think it's just a downward spiral that we're trying to stall slow? Well, right now we're in a downward spiral for sure. And it's not just everything that I tried to indicate in my, uh, my talk, but the, I did, but the emergence of an economic crisis at the same time. Um, all forms of public service journalism have always been subsidized by something. The subsidy systems in the US are all failing, almost all. 
and we have to find a new subsidy system. Um, advertising is failing. In the United States, trying to get the government to subsidize news is a very dodgy proposition. Um, increasingly, um, end users are being asked to support serious journalism. That makes sense, but the trust crisis interferes with that. Also, when you have become accustomed to drawing an audience with news and then paying your salary by selling that audience to advertisers, it isn't so simple to just flip a switch and suddenly start producing a good that people will pay for. Those are actually very different actions, drawing an audience that advertisers will buy versus producing journalism that people will pay for, those, that's a big adjustment. Um, so for now, with the political situation the way it is, with the economic crisis, with the virus causing massive layoffs in journalism, we are in a downward spiral and uh, the standing of the US press around the world is not the same. Um, because the president is attacking it all the time. Uh, and the prestige of the American press is in part drawn from the prestige of American democracy around the world, which is also taking hit after hit uh, with Trump. Um, and we're heading into an election campaign in which flooding the zone with shit, including a lot of shit about the virus and what's happening, is going to be not just a method, that is the campaign, creating confusion about what happened in this country, especially from January to April 2020, when the virus was beginning to attack us. Creating confusion about that is the reelection campaign of Donald Trump. And it incorporates all these things that I've been talking about, about American journalism. And I don't think our journalists are ready for that at all. Um, and I think that they're um, in many ways positioned for a repeat of 2016, which was a debacle for the press. And part of the problem here, if I could say one more thing about this, is that after these massive failures in press performance, going back, for example, to the run-up to the Iraq war, which I know, I know was a big deal in the UK as well. Uh, the economic crisis of 2008, uh, um, and now the, the virus coverage. You don't see in the American press um, large-scale reflection and reform after these debacles. You have a few news organizations, and I really mean a few, that take a look, for example, at their coverage of weapons of mass destruction and point out where they went wrong. And it happened maybe one or two times. The Washington Post did one, the New York Times did one. None of the major networks did that ever. Um, and you, you just don't see uh, changes in practice after these massive failures. And so they build up like, like debts, right? Um, in software, they have a uh, they have an expression technical debt, which is 
problems in your software system that you're using every day that you continue to patch up in a temporary way. And each time you patch them, you create like a bigger problem underneath until one day you can't make a patch and your entire system crashes. And I think this is what's happened in the American uh, press. And so and, until there's more, even more of a crash than we've seen, I am uh, pessimistic. That's a gloomy idea. Related to this kind of very good question from Connie Roby, but I think I know the answer, which is when Trump leaves office, assuming he does, which you know we'll assume he does, how much do you think the revert will, how much do you think the system will kind of revert to what it was and how much will it be yeah. stay in this kind of broken state? Well, I used to think that if a, uh, a sort of conventional politician be um, became po uh, president in 2020, that there was a chance that things could kind of like flip back to normal. Um, but now I see it a little differently. And that's because of the transformation of the Republican Party, which I talked about in my slides. Uh, if the Republican Party is no longer willing to be, let's say, empiricist at all, because this is one of the most striking facts about the Republican Party is that it has gone along with um, the president's rejection of science, with his put down of the intelligence community, with his disregard for factual truth of any kind, with his willingness to deceive his own supporters. Um, the Republican Party has gone along with that, and uh, partly because it fears the backlash of its voters. And so if the Republican Party stays in that kind of position, then it's going to be very difficult for uh, politics to change. And flooding the zone with shit, as we talked about, will in fact become part of the governing style of the party. And if that happens, which is very likely that it will, um, then I don't think that a new president will necessarily mean a change in pattern. And after all, Fox News is still going to be there. And, and Fox News, in a way, especially in its virus coverage, uh, its primetime virus coverage, is a portal for flooding the zone with shit. So that political style is also a communication style, a style of news delivery that um, is native to Fox News and its imitators. So that's still gonna be there. So I'm, I'm now more worried that these are uh, permanent shifts in part because we're, the old system of Democratic and Republican is breaking up and we now have the rise of kind of a, a new center of conflict or pole of conflict between open and closed. Uh, and uh, open to science, closed to science, open to the evidence, closed to the evidence, open to real journalism, closed to real journalism, open to the rest of the world, closed to the rest of the world. That's overtaking the political system. And we'll see how strong that is if there is a new president. Um, but in that conflict between open and closed, journalism has to be on the side of open and 
um, that means this culture war continues. Can I ask something that I think is quite specific to Trump, and then we'll go back to the culture war, which is from Lisa Kadri, which is, can you please talk about his misogynistic response towards female journalists, firstly, do you think it is misogynistic and, um, and what's kind of driving it? I think there's definitely something that that deeply bothers him about being challenged by a woman. There's no question about it. It's, it, it's been there from the beginning. Um, it's even more true if it's a woman of color. Um, in his very first official press conference, uh, April Ryan got up and asked him a question. She's a, a African-American journalist in the US um, about, and he, and, and he uh, it was a question about the, um, the cohort of um, black congressmen, Congress people. Uh, and Trump um, sort of screamed back at here, do you know these people? Can you get me a meeting with them? As if they were like friends of hers, which is a very bizarre way of addressing a reporter who's asking you a question about Congress, right? Um, and so it's obvious that all he could see was her color in a way. And he, he didn't try to conceal that. He didn't apologize for it. Um, and that was the first press conference in, uh, in February of 2017, um, which was an extraordinary event in itself because all of these broken assumptions and busted conventions that I've been talking about were on display in that, in that first event. So yeah, women, he, had, he cannot handle a woman challenging him. He's contemptuous of their right to ask him a question. And uh, women of color make it even worse for him. And um, it's not just that he behaves this way, it's that it's undisguised and it's not a problem for him or his staff. And as I've been saying, it's not a problem for the Republican Party. Mm. And yet that that kind of brings us to the heart of the problem that he's he's not being challenged by the people who could challenge him on that particular thing. Um, going back to the kind of idea of the culture wars and the idea of um, you know and flooding the zone as well. Do you think media literacy education could help with this in any way? This is a question from Mark Newton. Do you think that, for example, requiring high school graduates to be, and you know, those admitted to college in the military to go through a program of kind of understanding and reading the media would prove helpful? Because it seems to be a, a lack of understandings amongst many about the ins and outs of the media, the First Amendment, and how Facebook and Twitter work, for example. Mm -hmm. One of the uh... One of the lessons I have learned over the last um, few years, but especially the last few months since the virus, is that a lot of things that seem impractical or impossible still deserve attention and deserve study because when the wheel of history turns, suddenly they look different and, and they become super important. So an example would be um, public funding of news. For a long time, I was dismissive of, of that possibility. I didn't think it was a good way to go. I, I thought people who studied it were wasting their time. 
But now all of a sudden, it's actually a live possibility. In Canada, there is a subsidy system for news underway. In the UK, there's, there's some uh, attempts in that direction. And there's a, ma a majority of uh, Congress was in favor of some kind of government support for local news, which was such a distant project only a couple of years ago that it, it seemed like a purely academic exercise in the negative sense of the world. And I sort of feel this way about media literacy is that I, I once considered it to be, sure, it was desirable, but in our schools, we can't even teach math, you know? <laughs> so the, uh, so the, the idea that we're gonna get the American school system, which is really 3000 different school systems, it's not like France where in Paris, they decide to change the curriculum and, and the next year it's changed. We have nothing like that. Everything is, is local control, um, uh, and it's really hard to get the American education system to do anything right. Um, so I considered media literacy to be like, yeah, maybe someday kind of thing. But now um, it's, it's absolutely crucial to American citizenship. Uh, and so even though I don't know how to do it, I think it's got to be part of the answer because we can't solve these problems at the level of supply and tech platforms are, don't work the way institutions like journalism work in, in, in this sense. And whenever I talk about Facebook and news, I always start here. Is you, you have to understand that I'm sure most people listening to this do that um, for purposes of targeting ads, a false story, a fake story, a made up charge is just as good for Facebook as when people attend to a news story. And that fact, that simple fact is there and it's not gonna change. For targeting ads, false stuff works just as well as true stuff. And I don't think that a Supreme Court of Facebook or government regulation is going to be able to tackle that. And so the only place you can begin to see that problem being solved is at the level the literacy of the user. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know how to get there, but media literacy is going to be increasingly crucial to the prospects of any kind of democratic citizenship. Yes. Thank you. And the last question, which is kind of a million dollar question and going back to all your, your 10 talking points, um, which is again, for Tony Goodfellow, do you think COVID-19 is going to accelerate the problems you've outlined? It already has. Mm -hmm. It's already underway. It accelerates them because it makes the, um, the news media weaker as an institution, primarily by um, means of, of the recession that we're already in the economic crisis. Um, the weakness of the advertising model is being shown in stark relief. You have more people than ever accessing news. You have a flood of, of users and, and because people need information. And at the same time, revenues are going down. How is that possible? More users, more usefulness, less revenue, well, because the advertising model is broken. Um, and so that's exasperated. He, his flooding in the zone with bad information is, is rising with the virus. 
And now it's not just um, kind of political deception and propaganda trying to show his presidency as fixing everyone's problems. Now we have an additional problem, which is that the bad information coming from the president can actually cost you your life, which is like a new element to the problem. So for example, um, he said a few weeks ago that Americans that are, are, are still taking uh, airline flights and train trips are, are tested before they get on the airplane and tested when they get off the airplane. Nothing like that is true. It's completely made up. But that is, in effect, safety information that he is giving to people. You get tested before you go on an airplane. No problem. You get tested when you get off. He made it up. It's not true. And so, and so when you're talking about public health emergency, flooding the zone with shit is a deadly thing, not just a worrisome uh, thing. Uh, and with the, um, with the election coming up, these methods that I described in my 10 slides are, are going to be sort of sent into overdrive. Uh, and uh, as I said earlier, I don't think the press is ready for that, even though they know what's going on. And I'll just end with this, this observation that again and again in the United States now, we have this strange feeling which nobody knows how to describe or live with in which the undoing of our world, the undoing American democracy is happening in plain sight right in front of us. We know it and we can't stop it. Um, and journalism usually responds to a crisis like this by exposing the truth. But the truth is already exposed and it's killing us. And we don't have a press that's figured out a response to that, but we don't really have political institutions that have figured out a response to it either. So I can't blame journalists for that. Thank you so much, Jay. That's on the nose at, um, at four o'clock at UK time. Thank you so much for your insights. It's not, it's not the cheeriest note to end on, but it's, it's given a huge amount to think about. Really appreciate um, the overview. We would love to keep talking. We will, apologies to everyone for the intrusion, that kind of, highlights quite a lot about flooding the zone which is um, happening on every level. Thank you again for your time and I've said to Thank everybody you. we will email you with with the slides as well uh, and follow up email with more information. Thank you. Thank you Mira. Thanks. Bye everyone.